Morning. It's good to be with you. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Mark chapter 3? Mark chapter 3. If you, if you don't know, we're starting a new series today. It's going to be a short series called Home. And we're going to be looking at the biblical picture of the church. And so as, while you're rummaging for Mark chapter 3, I wonder, can I give you a thought experiment that's unlikely to happen, but you never know? You meet an alien. The alien doesn't know anything about the church but they are familiar with a lot of other institutions in contemporary Britain. They've been to shops, they've, been, they've hung out with mainstream ordinary people in London, so they know Britain pretty well, but they've just never heard of a church. And you have to try and explain what the church is based on another institution in contemporary Britain. Which one would you use and why? Okay, so would you use, for instance, would you say, to be honest, going to church is a bit like going to the gym except that the exercises are spiritual rather than physical. So you rock up, <clears throat> there's lots of other people there who are also interested in getting spiritually fit, and you get there and you do your thing, and it involves some waving around and stuff, and then at the end you hang out in the cafe, and you have coffee at the end, and then you give them some money, and then you drive home. Or would you say it's like a club? It's a bit like a book group, only instead of the book group being a latest paperback, the book group is a very, very old hardback. And you all study it together and you all learn about it and you talk about it and then you go home. Or it's like a cooking group, but instead of talking about food, they talk about God. Or would you say it's like a shop? You rock up, you give some money, you receive a service, you drive home, you avoid everybody else. Would you say it's like a company? You know, it's got a big, it's got a, got a goal, it's got a hierarchy, it's got a website, it's got a staff, it's got organisation, it's trying to achieve something. Would you say it's like a charity? It's kind of like that, but it's also now added to it the idea that it's not trying to make money, it's just trying to do something for practical usefulness. But what would you, which institution would you use to say to the alien, this is what the church is kind of like? And I should say, by the way, there's nothing wrong with meeting for coffee at the end or giving money. In fact, those things are great things. There's nothing wrong with organisation and websites and leadership and structure and staff and all the rest. In fact, if you go to a church that doesn't have those things, you'll probably find that they can really struggle. So they are good things, but that's not what the church of God is reduced to in the biblical presentation of what the church is. And I was wondering about it and I thought if I was going to meet that alien and I had to pick an institution or two from today to try and explain to the alien what the church is, I think I might say, to, well, there's lots of biblical images, but some of them aren't institutions, like the body or the church is like salt. I think the alien might say, okay, what do you mean? Um, the church is like light. Again, I don't really get that. Whereas I think I, if I said to him, actually, the church is basically like a family and like a temple, I think he might get what I meant. I said, the church is like a family in that it is a home for people. And the church is like a temple in that it's a home for God. And in fact, it's a home for people because it's a home for God. The reason why you guys are brothers and sisters together as church with me is because we are the dwelling place of God. And so over the next two weeks, I wanted to look at the church as a home for people, a family, and then as a home for God, a temple, which will be next week. And we're going to read a few verses from Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 31. This is, if we have ears to hear, this is one of the most shocking things Jesus would ever have said in his culture. And it's important for us to hear some of the surprise of what he said as we read it. Mark 3, 31. And his mother and his brothers came 
And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. It is hard for us to understand the scandal of the way Jesus talked about the family in this text in 21st century Britain. It just doesn't sound as shocking to us as it probably would have sounded to them. But if you live in a largely rural, peasant, honour, shame, family-centred world, like they did, like everybody in this period did, the greatest taboo there is, is to speak against the family. I was trying to think of a 20th century equivalent, and I thought of that scene in The Godfather, where Al Pacino has to say to his brother, Michael Corleone says to Fredo, Fredo, you are my older brother, and I love you, but don't ever take sides against the family again. And I won't spoil the end, but it doesn't end that well for Fredo after that. As you can probably tell, it's kind of a menacing moment. I have just, in saying that, spoiled the end. But there's this sort of very, very intense taboo over speaking against the family in that kind of environment. And that's the only equivalent. It's a very different environment, of course, but that's the only environment I could think of where, in a, in a Western context, where you might hear the same force to what Jesus is saying here. And imagine Jesus saying to a, an Italian mafia family in the 1950s, saying, who is my mum? Who's my brother? Everybody who does what I say, everybody who follows Christ is my mother and my sister and my brother. You would hear something of the shock of what they would have heard when they heard him say it. Because Jesus is placing Christian identity above family identity. That is incredibly radical. It's so radical, most of us have found ways of explaining it away to mean something else. Because it sounds so shocking to us. And in many cultures, we've just found other ways of trying to account for it. We've got to say Jesus is not removing family obligations here. He's not saying, oh, who cares about parents? Because a few chapters later in Mark 7, he's actually going to really tear people off a strip for refusing to serve their parents and honour their mother and father because they're giving money to the offering. Right? So Jesus does value family a great deal. But he is saying that your, your allegiance through the blood of Christ is greater than your allegiance through the blood of biology. Your allegiance to your spiritual family is stronger than your allegiance to your physical family, and that's an astonishing thing to say. He's speaking here about the woman that we now refer to as the Virgin Mary. Now, I say that because she's, she's not the Virgin Mary now, right? There's brothers and sisters everywhere, so she's clearly not a virgin anymore. But at this point, we would, throughout history, we've often honoured this woman, and Jesus is saying, who's my mum? He's saying, my, allegiance, my connection with her is weaker, in a sense, than my connection with whoever does my will. And obviously Mary did, so Mary's, Mary scores on both counts. But you understand what I'm saying, right? You and I, Jesus is saying, I, my connection with my brothers and my sisters who believe is my priority over even my connection with my biological relatives. And that is such an astonishing thing to say that the church has spent many generations trying to weasel out of it. In many cases, we've found ways of going, well, I can't really have meant that. And to be honest, it's much easier to be a gym or a club or a corporation or a charity than it is to be a family. That's what Jesus says. And sometimes we 
talk the talk of family, but we don't always walk the walk. And I found that I've particularly helped, been helped in this, I suppose, just to see the radical edge of what Jesus is saying by a couple of different groups of people. I've sometimes found when I've met people who are not familiar with Britain, right, maybe new to the country or visiting the country, they will sometimes say, we just don't kind of get the way that you guys do home and family. It seems, I mean, like in our culture, hospitality means you open your home. In your culture, hospitality means you open your diary or your phone. It just feels like a different way of engaging with people. So help us understand that. People often helping me see my own culture and think, wow, that is not something I'm naturally good at. So I've been helped by people from other cultures. I've also been very helped by single friends of mine, people who are unmarried, people who are often able to see, the fa- they see through some of the family talk and say, in the end, sometimes the church is not so much one big family as lots and lots of little families. And they've often been very challenging. A friend of mine recently was, was just really wisely but graciously but saying, like, well, you've got to, I as a single person, I ask questions like, who will be my emergency contact? Am I ever going to be touched for more than two seconds? Am I ever going to experience intimacy or love in the family of God? Who am I going to spend Christmas and Easter with? Who am I going to go on holiday with? Who's going to be at my bedside when I'm dying? And I heard the challenge, and I just thought, yeah, that's, I actually said to her, can I, can I quote you on that in teaching in the church? Because I would find that so helpful to articulate the kinds of things that it must mean if the church is to be a family. That actually the answer to those questions is yes. And of course, there's many people here who would say, that is my story. There are many single people in this church who would say, that's exactly what the church has been to me. Praise God. But I also think many might say, yeah, but we have a way to go to live up to the radical edge of what it is to be the family of God together as a church, to be a home for people. I think there are two sides to that. The first one is the obvious one, which is that the church needs to be like a family. The second one is less obvious, which is that the family needs to be more like a church. And I'll come to that in a moment. But the church needs to be more like a family, and the church is called to pursue this vision in our, in our context, and we need to work that out in the context of who we are and the city that we're in. But Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. This is you guys. You are my family. He is telling us that's what he thinks of us as and then saying we're now going to work that out. So we are to treat one another individually as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children rather than as colleagues, co-workers, or whatever. That means a bunch of things. That means affection rather than distance. Now, that affection has to be appropriately applied according to our age, our sex, our relationship with the person, and so on. But it means affection. It means closeness rather than distance. It means honor rather than flippancy towards older people, older men and women. You see, in a corporate context, you defer to people and show them respect according to their power and their money. Whereas in a family, you don't. In a family, you defer to people and show them respect according to their age, their maturity, their experience. And the church is a family more than a corporation. Actually, you've got to be careful not to over-esteem people in the church on the basis of things like gift and not to under-esteem people on the basis of things like age, to function like a family. It means including children in the life of the church, as we have just done beautifully. It means that we have formed close but non-sexualized relationships with the opposite sex. It means that men show a deep respect for the dignity and gifts of women. It means generosity and forgiveness and 
acceptance and stickability through hard times. It means a lot of things, just at an individual level. So this is the kind of thing that it means for us as, as individuals to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. But this is not just something we do individually. It's also something we have to do corporately. And this can be a little harder. And often people check out when they hear it being said in the context of a large church. Because often what people say is, ah, if we are going to be a family, we've got to be small. Can't do family, big. We've got to be small. Now, some of us are from very big families. Some of us have been, as I have, to family gatherings that include 100 plus people. And so you know that families can be big. And in fact, they all are. It's just a question of how far back you trace it and how many people you keep in touch with. But we do have to be careful that we don't swallow the idea that family is incompatible with size. Because otherwise, we'll just pick one. And we'll go either, right, well, I need to be in a family, which means I've got to be in a church of seven people. Or we'll say, well, oh, I like being in a big church. We won't do family then. Do you see the dangers on both sides? Right? But now, the church in Jerusalem had 5,000 people. So we know that it can't be the case that you can't be family at scale. Right? The church in Jerusalem, if everybody turns up, is three times the size of our church. So there can't be anything wrong with being large. But large family gatherings do have to work at things that smaller families may not. I went to a large family gathering a few years ago that was organized by my great uncle. And we have a big family. He was one of six. My granny was one of six. So they had a big family and lots and lots of relatives, many of whom I'd never met. Half of them are from England. Half of them are from Scotland. And we turn up at this big old venue that my great uncle has organized. And I've never met well over half the people there. And we have this huge football match, England versus Scotland. And I spent the afternoon being chased around by this happy hacker of a... You've ever played against teenage girls who go for your ankles instead of going for the ball? I didn't know her, but I, the weird thing is you're doing this. And you get into this little battle and you've got this kind of weird feeling thinking, we're related. We've got the same... Great-grandparents, isn't that weird? We've never met. Like, you and I share DNA. You're obviously not having this conversation, but you're kind of thinking, this is, this is interesting, this is fascinating. And I don't remember how many people there were, but 100 plus, big, big gathering. It's interesting, you're all family, but you have to do some things very differently at that scale because somebody has to say, this is the plan for the day. We are going to eat then, there, with this meal, and then we're going to play football, and then we're going to do this and that and the other, and then we're going to all get together, and so-and-so is going to make a speech, and then we'll have an evening meal, and then we'll all go. But you can't just say, as me and my wife and three kids can say, what do you want to do today? What's for lunch? Right? Somebody has to think it all through, but that doesn't mean it's not a family. It just means it's a family that has to process things differently. And one of the things that we have to do as a large church is to ensure that in being large, we don't somehow absorb the idea that we are fundamentally corporate rather than fundamentally a family. I want to think, here's a few practical ways I mean that, right? Take the example of evangelism, sharing the gospel with a new person. In a corporate context, that's called recruitment. You get a new person in. We've recruited a new client or a new person, a staff member, right? And we leave that to this department, HR or whatever, sales. They go out and they find new people and they bring them in and they don't know. And the rest of us just ignore it. There is a risk. You can function like that in the church. This recruiting new evangelism, corporate. That's the alpha department. Moses does that. Moses and his team. We'll leave them to do it. And that just gets on. Whereas, of course, what's the family picture of, of bringing new life into the world? It's not recruitment. The family picture is birth, right? The family picture involves blood and screaming and mess. And it involves everybody's lives being put out of joint because a new person has suddenly arrived in their midst. And larger families, it doesn't affect everybody equally. But the image that we are to think of is new birth and not new recruits. It doesn't just get outsourced to a department. 
The same is true as that baby then begins to grow and begins to be trained in the ways of the family or in the ways of Christ. You begin to train the person. That's not delegated to another group. That's, it's not an induction week. You know, someone being discipled. It's not like, hey, we'll tell you, here's how you read your Bible. Here's how you pray. Here's how you do this. Now, come back and see me if you've got any questions. Oh, here's the photocopier code. That's not the way you work in a family. In a family, you say, yeah, forming you as a follower of Christ is going to take decades, certainly years, and we're going to be in and with you and around you and challenging you and encouraging you and laughing with you that whole time. And some of us will, some new people will join and some old people will leave, but we will be together with you, helping you grow. See the difference in those two models? We are a family. The same thing happens when you need pastoral care, when someone's in danger or someone's in crisis, right? In a corporate environment, again, that's left to specialists. By the way, specialists are great. It's wonderful to be in a larger church that has people who are really gifted at certain things. Praise God for people who do that, right? I'm not, that's, effectively, that's what I do. I'm a specialist. I do one kind of ministry. I love that. I'm so grateful we've got people who are really good at caring for people. But if we outsource care for people who are in need to just a department of the church, we are functioning like a corporation or even a charity, even maybe a good one, rather than the family of God. Let me tell you a story about family needs, right? Christmas Eve, three years ago, I left the brake off my, my son's buggy. I didn't realize I had. I thought I'd parked it five yards from a lake. I'd actually just left it five yards from a lake. Didn't realize the lock wasn't on. Turn around, my nephew's coming towards me, I turn around and have a hug. I suddenly hear a shout, oh! from my brother, who is standing just there, and he has seen my nine-month-old baby son rolling down and just tip and fall into the lake. I found, it's just an interesting, the reaction you get at that point, oh, genuine concern, right? You're even feeling my pain because you know what it's like to be family. He goes, oh, and he instantly turns and just runs and the two of us together just run and jump into the lake and obviously dripping wet, pull out this buggy and so on. Rachel is still emotionally recovering from that day. Sam's fine, he doesn't even know it ever happened. But the point is at that point, what my brother on seeing it happen did not do is to say, uh, I, need a, I need to write something down. Something needs to be discussed next Tuesday. There is somebody in need at this point, and I think they've just fallen in the lake. Whose responsibility was that? I can't remember whose department is accountable for that. And who put left the brake on? We must make sure we get a better process for ensuring brakes aren't left on. Do you see, that's not what he does. He goes, oh, and jumps in to rescue people. And again, I'm not saying it's not good to have people who are good at caring for people in the church. I am saying if we delegate love for people to other humans, other parts of the organization, we are functioning like a corporation, not a family. And this is not who we're called to be. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, my mother. I am connected to that baby, even if he's not my child. I've got to jump in after him. It applies to church government. The church needs not just managers and leaders, although again, praise God, but needs fathers and mothers. That's how the Bible often talks, isn't it? Shepherds. In our church, we call the fathers elders. We need mothers as well. There's plenty of mothers in the New Testament. So we function with family imagery dominating who we are, primarily rather than corporate imagery. So the church is to be like a family. And really just that needs to go all the way down into all kinds of cracks of who we are. But at the same time, as the church needs to be more like a family, the family needs to be more like a church. And this is a stranger idea that probably will sound a bit more out there to some of us. But what I mean by it is that the boundaries of our family units, our households, need to be more extended 
and more open or more porous than most households in contemporary Britain generally are. Right? So here's what British people do. British people get a certain amount of money, and then what they do is when they can afford it, they put as much space between them and another living soul as they can. Right? It might be putting them in a different bedroom. It might be buying a larger house. It might be getting a large garden. It might mean living in a very detached neighborhood. But the more money we get, the more space we put between ourselves and other humans. Kind of joking, but not entirely, right? And what we do in the church is we actually live saying, no, my, fa- my family, my household is actually not intended simply to be a means of removing myself from human contact, a place to hide. It is actually a a place with a table and a kitchen and a door that welcomes, a lounge, a place that people are welcomed into. And when you look at the New Testament in that light, you notice something fascinating, which is that churches start as households all the time. In fact, Jesus sends the disciples out on mission in pairs, and he says, go and find someone to stay with. Go and find a home. Right? That's weird. You think, why, do, why do you do that? Why don't they just stand on the street shouting or doing whatever it is or writing literature? No, go and find a home. And what you'll find is that as people hear the word in the home, they will invite other people in to hear the word in that home and the home will grow and the house will become large enough that it becomes a little church and then it'll start other households of God all over the place. Right? That's what happens in Paul's apostolic mission all the time. He turns up to a new city, goes, oh, well, I don't know anybody here. Right, oh, tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. Ah, great, yeah, good to meet you. Can I lodge with you while I preach the gospel of Jesus? And they go, yeah, we love Jesus too. Great, well, let's gather a few more people. You want to come and hear about Jesus? We're going to meet in this household, and it gets larger and plants more. And the same thing happens. You read Romans and 1 Corinthians. Paul signs off and just greeting all of these households. Greet the church that meets in her house. Greet the church that meets in his house. Isn't it great to have households turning into churches all over the world? And the danger is that We can forget that that's what the church is intended to be and instead make our household or our home simply a place to retreat from the world rather than a place to invite those others into in order to help shape them in the ways of Jesus, whether they're believers or not, actually. Now, what we can do is we continue living in our homes as isolated individuals, ones, twos, you know, single people live maybe on their own or with another person, and married people live with us and our kids and no one else, maybe a goldfish, and then the re- but other than that, we're just going to retreat. We're going to have it's just us, and then we will create as much space between us and everyone else as possible. And then, if that's the way we live normally, then we turn up at church on Sunday and we say, right, the church needs to provide me with a family. At which point, I think the people who run programs for students or single people or young people or older people or whatever are going to say, I would going to do my best. I love programs, by the way. Used to be a youth worker, kids worker, and student worker. Yay for programs, but... They cannot provide this. Ultimately, that's going to actually... We work out family in people's homes with children and spillages and washing up. Right? You can't do that just on a Sunday or even on a Sunday and a Tuesday. And so the, the family, our family units, our households need to function... Well, I'm using that word loosely, right? Whether you, there's kids there or not. To function like a church. To function like a little congregation of God that invites people in and lives out the family of God in practice. Now, as a child, we always had... In my family, we always had that. My parents were really great at this. They, they, we had people living with us the whole time when I was a kid. Before I went away to school at 12, they, I think people were living us pretty much the entire time. One day, my dad goes off to work, meets a woman who's just become a single mum because her husband's just left her. She's got a teenage kid. And dad comes back to mum and says, I think we should take them in. I don't think they've got anywhere else to go. I'd love them to 
be part of our family. My parents move out of their room. They create room for, her, for this woman, Margaret, and her daughter, Tracy. And we still know them now, 30 years later. And our family instantly goes from six to eight and remains that for the next two years. And, they would, and that happened a lot. Like that's not a one-off. And multiple people. Rachel and I, since we've, we've been celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary the other day, by the way, which is great, lovely to have. Oh, thank you. But lovely to have had 15 years. Of that 15 years, we reckon we've had about half of that time we've had somebody else living with us. And half the time we haven't. Um, but we've had usually single people, not always, living in our home. And it, I don't want to sentimentalize or romanticize that. It's often very hard for them and for us to have people living with you. It's real, it's powerful in many ways, but it's often very difficult. Those people share, in a good way, in mealtime, prayer time, bath time, bedtime with the kids and everything. But they also, when the kids get sick, they get sick as well. Because germs have a habit of doing that. And there's less space and more mess for them and for us. Arguments are much harder to hide. right? Maybe you, you're one of those couples who doesn't have arguments, doesn't apply. We have arguments occasionally. I don't mean, you know... Shouty, shouty, but I mean like, you could, this is, t- tensions have risen, and then the person who's in our kitchen at the time has to find a way. Well, one of our friends is a master at it, actually, like that gif of Homer Simpson where he just disappears backwards into the hedge, <laughs> and you just see him vanish, and we, we never know where he's gone. Like, he's there, we're arguing, and then we look around and think, where did Pete go? And it's like, he's found a moment to slip out. <laughs> but seriously, it, it can be difficult and demanding on both families and single individuals to live in community with other people. Families are inconvenient contexts. But that's what families do. They live together, and as they do that, they form one another, and I think it's irreplaceable. I'm not saying, by the way, therefore, that every family should have single people living with them, or that every single person should live with a family. What I am saying is that if we don't at least ask that question, we may be missing what Jesus is talking about here. If we don't at least say, Lord, what would you have us do as a family unit to run through the biblical filter, our living arrangements, so that they reflect this vision of who we actually are? If that question never comes up, then we may have a problem. And it may well mean that in your context, it looks totally different to what it looks like in mine for all kinds of reasons, because of where you live and, wow, the rest of my family aren't believers, or, well, we just don't have literally any space, or whatever it may be. There's all kinds of reasons that could be very good ones, but it's worth thinking through, Lord, what would you have me do to express this vision in my home life? And as a young married couple, we didn't. Um, we were challenged really brilliantly by a, a friend of ours who was single at the time, and she sat down and said, I really want to talk to you, like, you guys, as a group of friends, you all got married in couple. You all paired off. And then you started all inviting each other to things, but you didn't invite me because I'm single. And I just felt like suddenly a group of friends had turned into a bubble and I was outside it. And we were, we were just like, oh, we are so sorry. That is exactly what happened. And we, are, we were wrong and we are so sorry. We will change. I actually don't think it's just true for people in their 20s. I, was, I, I highly recommend this book, by the way. Sam Albury, Seven Myths About Singleness. It's a fantastic book. But Sam is in his 40s, and he wrote this. Uh, this just came out this year, but I thought this was a really fascinating comment he made very graciously. But he said, some of my friends have said something along the lines of, you know where we are, and you're always welcome. Don't wait for us to invite you. On one level, this is very touching. But when several say it, the cumulative effect on darker days is to make me hear it as, we're not going to be thinking of you or pursuing you. We don't necessarily need you, and so you're going to have to reach out to us if you want to come over, and it will always need to be you coming to us rather than the other way around. I thought, that's true. That's a challenge. 
What does it look like to live as the family of God? Now, I'm happy to say that today, my family couldn't make life work without our single friends, which is partly because we have two children with special needs and just doesn't work without our single friends. And so as I'm speaking to you right now, there is a woman called Jenny chasing a nine-year-old girl who is my daughter around a building in Eastbourne, trying to stop her from rushing the stage and enabling Rachel to be able to look after the other two children and or possibly praise God as well. And that's because... We have single friends who are very much closely part of our lives. My friend Pete came on holiday with us, and he, often, you know, he will probably do that each year, actually. And he used to live with us for, lived with us for two years. He's a, one of our closest friends. We were with him last night. But I said to him when we were on holiday in France uh, a, couple of, a couple of months ago, I said, it's so great having you here, man. Can I just say, like, every family should have a Pete. And he said, and every Pete should have a family. And I thought, That's, this cuts both ways. I need you and you need me. That's what, now, that, that what it looks like for you will be different according to your context. But I want us to think that one through as it comes to living out Jesus' vision. Who, anybody who does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. That's what Jesus said. Now, living as the family of God is, is costly, right? I don't want, I'm not trying to romanticize it. It is countercultural. It looks weird to people sometimes. Families are challenging, disruptive, and inconvenient environments. So I'm not suggesting we're just a little step away from a huge hippie commune in which we all sit around, play the guitar, everybody lives in... I know that's not the way things are, but although being the family of God is difficult, it is also possible. It is gloriously, counterculturally possible. And the reason is not that you and I are selfless or diligent or just brilliant, caring people... The reason it's possible is because of the character of the God who has already adopted us into his family and made us brothers and sisters whether we know it or not. So actually what Jesus is saying to us here and what Paul says to us in his letters is not, you guys really need to figure out how to become the family of God. Get on with it. They're saying, sorry guys, you're stuck with them. You are already part of a massive family of billions of people because as soon as you got adopted by the Father, as soon as the blood of Jesus covered you, as soon as the Spirit moved into your life, you became part of a massive family, even though you didn't realise it. And some of us went, oh, that's a little bit unfair. I thought I was only getting Jesus. He went, no, that's the great trick. It was in the small print. You didn't just get Jesus. You got these billions of other people. And now you're part of a family with them and you don't even know who many of them are. And you're going to work out this Christian life as a family because that's what I've made you to be, regardless of whether or not you thought that's what you were signing up for. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, this is how Paul describes salvation. He says, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the likeness of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's how Paul describes what salvation is. You becoming more, looking more and more like Jesus so that Jesus might be the oldest of a massive family. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them, that's you, brothers and sisters. That's who you are. That's who I am to you and who you are to me, even if we don't like it, and I hope we do, because we have become part of God's family and if you respond to Jesus, if you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus and get baptised in water, you will find yourself in this massive family even if you didn't know that was part of the deal. Your destiny is to be conformed to be like him so that he might be the oldest sibling in an unthinkably massive family of God. So Jesus and Paul and the others are not telling us to be family. They are telling us that we already are in Christ. And then they're saying, this is what it looks like to work that out in love and faithfulness. 
And it's in that spirit that we come to the family table at the end of this meeting and come and receive the meal that God has cooked for us in his kitchen. God has given us bread representing his body. God has given us wine, which we use juice, representing his blood. And he said, this is a family meal. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. He has made many to be one. He has made the disparate to become a family. And in that, in that led by his example, let's be those who imitate the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth gets its name. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of adoption, for making us part of your family, not just forgiving us, glorious as that is, not just giving us new life, not just giving us a new world and a resurrection body in the future, but giving us the privilege of being your children and the brothers and sisters of one another. Thank you, Lord, for the scale of what has been accomplished for us in Christ. And we pray that as a church here, Kings, at this site in Catford, you would help us live out and embody this astonishing transformation you say has taken place to us in Christ, that we would live as a family, we would work out and put on display the reality of what you have done in our lives so that the world might see that we have a very good father and a very large family. And we pray this in Jesus' name.